Amen. Amen. Church, you may be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We're not quite finishing off the sermon today, the chapter today. We're not quite finishing off chapter 3 today. We're going to just look specifically at verses 26 to 28. Romans 3, 26 to 28. And so I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. And I'm just going to read this for you, verses 26 to 28. And then, as is our custom, we'll pause and we'll pray and we'll ask God's Holy Spirit to help us to understand the text that's in front of us and to help us, more, more importantly, to believe it. And so I invite you to turn with me there. I'm going to pick it up. I, I, I mean, just to remind you of where we're at, he's been arguing all the way through chapters 1, 2, and 3 that we're all hopeless without Christ. I mean, now he's really zeroing in on Christ. But he's been arguing the fact that the whole world knows that there's a God, that the whole world has suppressed that truth and unrighteousness, and that no man has any excuse. And, and then in chapters 2 and following, he turns his attention to those individuals who are Jewish, who have the law, and they pride themselves that because they have the law, they will be justified by the law. And he begins to argue against that as well. And now he comes here in chapter 3, and he points us towards the only one that can justify us, and that is God, who is just in sending forth his Son, and through his Son is pleased to be our justifier. And so look with me, Romans chapter 3, verse, we'll pick it up in verse 26, and we'll go to 28. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of a law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much for this word and we thank you, Lord, for speaking to us through the pen of the Apostle Paul as you moved him supernaturally by your Spirit to write every precious word of your Holy Scripture, as you moved him to record what you are saying upon the page that we might have it, to hold it, and to treasure it from now and forevermore. Thank you for speaking to us, Heavenly Father. And as we look at this this morning, my prayer, Father, is that if there are any here who have not placed all their hope only in your Son. My prayer, Lord, is that you would convict them and that you would call them to a full and total surrender. Do this, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus was sleeping. He had quickly gone back to sleep. Much to the amazement of all the other disciples, all the other apostles who were there in the boat with him, just minutes before, they were all convinced that they were on the edge of dying. Those westerly Galilean winds had swept down upon the ocean and had kicked up the waves, and these experienced fishermen who had grown up fishing the shores of Galilee 
began to respond to the situation as best they knew how. They had started probably by shifting ballast around in the boat, and then as the waves grew crazier and wilder and more dangerous, and as they began to become more and more afraid, they may have even started to throw tackle overboard, throw ballast overboard in order to lighten the ship. Surely they would have cut loose the sail so as not to be driven. They're just at this point trying to bob and hopefully not go under. But then as the waves grew increasingly violent, they would have seen the crashing water hitting them from every direction and they would have begun to despair. They had lost all confidence and it was at this moment that they decided to wake up Jesus and their words to him were, Master, we perish. We are dead. Christ stood up calmly in the boat as it began to rock to and fro from one side to the next with water crashing in. And he probably would have looked around and maybe swept back his hair and shaken the water that had surely puddled on his face as he'd been sound asleep in the bottom of the boat. And with just a word, he would have said, peace, be still. And immediately the killer storm was killed. And the waters were calm and glassy, and the wind ceased. But it is the next statement which should grip all of us. Turning to his disciples, as Luke tells us in Luke chapter 8, he said, Where is your faith? Now, you and I hear that question today in our current context, and we hear it as a bit of a rebuke, not in the sense of the way Christ would have intended it as a rebuke, but in the sense of a diminishment, a mockery, as though we don't have faith, as though it's low, that it's minimal, that it's not significant enough. Like, oh, I can't see your faith. Is, is there any faith there? I'm looking for it. Do I see it? And surely there is an element of this that is true to Christ's criticism, but I think that the way he poses the question, he wasn't questioning their faith in terms of its existence. He was questioning their faith in terms of where they placed it. They saw a storm and they believed in the power and the destruction and the danger of the storm. And he was wondering why they hadn't placed that faith in him. Where was their faith pointed? In what was their faith placed? Where were they locating their faith? And that's the question that I want you to wrestle with this morning, church. As we look at Romans chapter 3, coming to the tail end of chapter 3 in the book of Romans, the question that I want you to wrestle with this morning as we're looking at this text is where do you place your faith? Is it entirely and exclusively in Jesus Christ? Paul has been arguing against all of these mistaken notions of righteousness and pride. He talks about the fact that the world, which wants to say, we didn't know that there was a God, we didn't know that he was real, he says to them in the chapter 1, they are without excuse because God has made himself known to all the world. What can be known about God is obvious, Paul says, because he has shown it to them. In chapter 2, he comes back and he says, then you have people, such as the Jews, who have received the law of God. They've been 
revealed, they've had it revealed to them, the righteousness that God expects, and they have clung to that, thinking that they're actually honoring God, and he points out the fact that they have broken the law, and in fact that the law points to Jesus. And that is the point that he's driving here. And as we wrestle with this text this morning, I want you to ask yourself this question, do you believe entirely and only in Christ? Perhaps more importantly, we should ask ourselves the question, what does that mean? What does that look like? So if you'll turn with me, he says, beginning in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, talking about why God has put Jesus forward, he says it was to show his righteousness at the present time. Right now, God wants to show himself to all the world as righteous, righteous in sending forth Jesus. God is vindicated by placing Christ before us as the object in which we are to place our hope. And he says the reason he did that is because he wants to be just, he wants to be able to forgive us of our sins, and yet to be honoring of the law, and the only way he can do this, of course, is by sending someone to die in our place, bearing the punishment we deserve for our sins, and that is Jesus Christ. So he sends Jesus Christ forward to be just. In other words, the law and the demands of the law will be satisfied. But in sending Jesus forward to take our sins, he is just and through Christ, the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. That's what Paul says, which leads to an interesting question. What becomes of our boasting? Interesting that he should raise this at this time, don't you think? I mean, when I hear of faith in Christ, I don't immediately go to this question of, oh, what am I going to brag about then? But Paul does. Notice that. And he goes on to say, boasting, bragging, being proud of yourself, all of this is excluded by what kind of a law? Coming back to this question of law. Law of works? Nope. He says, by the law of faith. Now, in order to understand this passage, we have to step back and we have to wrestle with the way Paul uses the word law in this text. I think the best description that I ever had given to me several years ago, probably going back two decades now, 20 years ago, I remember a dear brother of mine at Park Hills Baptist Church in Austin, Texas, and he was a pilot for Southwest Airlines. And he was actually doing a Bible study on law. And the way that he began to explain law was he said that uh, as a pilot, he was bound to certain physical laws when he was flying his airplane. You have gravity. That is an immutable, unchangeable law. What goes up will come down, must come down. And yet airplanes use other physical laws, other physical forces, in order to counteract that law of gravity. By generating enough speed with wings that are shaped a certain way, they're able to create aerodynamic pressure called lift, and that puts the plane up in the sky where it is able, assuming it goes fast enough, it is able to maintain flight for extended periods of time. But he said when it comes to the law, you have a law that's pulling you down, and you're able to overcome that law if you operate in terms of the principles of physics and you generate enough lift, you're able to harness the law, not break the law, in order to counter the effects of gravity in order to fly. Now, what was interesting about this discussion is he said, as a pilot, you can do all kinds of things in the airplane to a limit, but the airplane itself still has certain limits beyond which it cannot go. 
particularly when you're talking about a passenger commercial jet, you can't just bank this thing around like it is a fighter jet. The wings aren't built for that kind of stress. It's large, it's heavy. And so there are certain principles at play here in which if you want to have a safe flight, you're not going to be banking this thing around like you're a jet fighter pilot. He said, when it comes to flying a plane, then, we have what he referred to as an envelope. And he described it like this. There is a boundary like this, and there are certain things you can do in the plane that will take you to the edges of the boundaries of what is possible physically with this particular airplane. As long as you stay inside that, he referred to it as an envelope, as long as you stay inside that envelope, you'll probably live and not die. But he said no pilot, if he was just up there goosing the plane around and constantly taking the plane to the edge of that envelope, would keep his job for long. Because the passengers would be sick and nauseated, and you constantly have these enormously high cleaning bills, and the airlines don't want to pay money to have the carpet steam cleaned as a result of passenger air sickness. So a pilot's job then is not to just bounce around everywhere he can inside of this envelope. His job is to fly as close to the center as possible. When we talk about the law, the way we need to define this word in this text is like this. The law is a boundary. And the moment you cross outside that boundary you know unequivocally that you are sinning against God. You know you have violated God's will. Does that mean, however, that we're to be bouncing as close to that boundary as we possibly can? And here's where the Jews really failed. Here's where all mankind, all mankind that tries to put forward any kind of a pretense towards religion or religiosity, this is where we all fail. You see, the law's purpose, you might think of it better as an inverted funnel. You understand how funnels work. You need to put a little oil in your car. You put a funnel into the oil inlet of your car. You tip the oil can up and oil goes into your car, right? It takes a large area and it funnels it into a small area. Well, you'd be mistaken if you thought the law was like that. A barrier with sort of a a slope to it that was intended to pull us closer to the heart of God. That's not how the law actually operates. The law is as though you took that funnel and you flipped it upside down. And your goal, if you're going to stay within the envelope, is to climb that law to the very center, to climb up that inverted funnel, so to speak, to where God is, and to be at the very center of the law is to be closest to God's heart. And the purpose of this inverted funnel of the law is to show the Jews, and through the Jews, all of us, that this funnel gets too steep, in fact, impossibly steep, and that none of us can keep it. None of us can fully honor the law. None of us can get at the center, as my airline friend would have said, of the envelope where we are meant to be. That's how Paul is understanding law in this particular context. 
He says, are we to be justified by climbing this law in order to get to the center of it? And he's already argued across chapters 1 and 2 and most of chapter 3 at this point that it's not possible. You can't make it. And so he says, God is just through being the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is like an individual. He is our Savior that God puts forward who carries us to the top of the funnel that can put us in the center of God's will and bring us to the heart of God himself. And you've all heard the illustration, I'm sure. Millions of preachers all over the world have said that trusting in Jesus is kind of like finding yourself in a burning building and there's no way out and you have no way to escape. And all of a sudden, in that moment, a fireman comes to you and he says, trust me, I will carry you out of this raging inferno. And you say, great, what does that mean? He says, you just got to climb on my shoulders and close your eyes and hold on tight and I'll rescue you. And at a very basic level, that is correct. Believing first that Jesus, like the fireman, is capable of carrying you away from danger to safety, believing that that is true, and also entrusting yourself to him. Okay, I believe this guy can pick me up and throw me on his shoulder, and I believe he can carry me out of this building. Knowing these things is good, but just knowing them isn't enough. I have to actually surrender. And that's what Paul says here. You have to surrender to Christ. You say, how does he say that, Pastor Josh? I don't see it. He says it when he makes this statement. Faith in Christ excludes boasting. Faith in Christ excludes all forms of bragging. There is nothing for you to be proud of. There is nothing for you to rejoice in or to exalt yourself in when you trust in Jesus Christ. And you're looking at this, you're like, wait, that is a really weird way to emphasize this point. But it isn't really if you consider everything Paul has been saying up until this point. This is the logical place for him to say, once you believe in Jesus Christ, you have no more grounds for bragging. You have no more grounds of boasting, not that we really had anything to brag or boast in in the first place, but you're looking at this, you're saying this is a really weird place for him to bring it up. No, it's not. He has actually said it at multiple points throughout the letter up until this point. He starts off in Romans chapter 1, verses 29 to 30. Flip back to Romans chapter 1. He has made this giant sweeping condemnation of all mankind. He says, we are all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And in chapter 1, he says, everybody knows that there is a God, and they've suppressed this truth. And he works his way through chapter 1. And at the very end, he says, they were filled, all of humanity were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are all full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty. Notice the word. If you're with me, in Romans 1, 29 to 30, he says they are insolent, haughty, boastful. So, boasting is pride. It's where you outwardly express something that you inwardly believe. If you're proud of something, if you take great delight in something, you're going to brag about it. And in this particular context, in chapter 1, we have mankind proud of the fact that they are not worshiping God, that they're not putting God first in their life. They've invented all kinds of evil, and they are proud of it, Paul says, because they are boasting in it. Boasting doesn't first make its appearance in Romans chapter 3. It's there all 
throughout. They are boasting in their sinfulness. He goes on in verse 32 to condemn them. He says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. They not only do the things that they know are wrong before God, but they boast in those things and they say, boy" to others who join them in that sinfulness. We're having quite a bit of rain lately. I'm sure you've noticed the waters are coming up, the rivers are swelling, people are starting to get nervous that we might have a flood. Now, obviously, I don't want Kamloops to flood, but I got to tell you something, this rain is doing wonders for my ego. It truly is. Many of you may have heard me say this before. For those of you who are new to our church, take note. I like a good green grass. I do. I really, really do. Yesterday morning, I was down in Chase with uh, Nolan Pasteur, a friend of mine, and we were trying to get this boat into the water. And uh, the yard down in Chase, uh, there had been a couple of brown patches left over from the winter. And of course, I had sprinkled some seed and some fertilizer, and I'd broken up the ground, and I'd put fresh soil on it. And uh, he got there before me, and he was doing some things to get the boat ready. And I pulled up, and uh, I got out of my my car, and he was like, oh, hey, how's it going? So here's the battery, you know, and here's the thing for the... I'm like, hang on one second. Wait, and I went, and do you know what I'm looking at? I'm taking a look at my beautiful green grass. Look at these new little blades of grass popping up. All those dirt patches have been minimized. They're almost all over. There's still a little bit of dirt patch there, but they're almost all the way covered up. And then when I come back around the corner, Nolan is there trying to, you know, get his boat ready. And, of course, I don't say to him, all right, what do we need to do to get this boat ready to go? That's not the first thing I say to him. The first thing I say to him is, hey, did you see that grass in my yard? It's looking pretty good. That rain, it's good. It's good stuff. I take delight in my grass. Now, whenever you really enjoy something, you don't just privately enjoy it. It's interesting how God has made us as humans, created in his image. What we delight in, we must praise. What we love and value, we must commend to those around us. I like a green grass. You all know this because I tell you when you're at my house, hey, what do you think of my grass out there? Pretty nice, eh? I look at my neighbor's grass, and I'm like, these guys need to do some yard work. Paul says that people are delighting in wickedness. And what compounds their sin is that they're boasting about their delight in wickedness. They're not just doing these things just to do them. They're not automatons. They're not robots. They like doing evil, and you know that because they boast in it. And you further know that because when other people join in doing the evil, they pat them on the back. They say, 
Hey, good job. I like the way you're sinning right now. Much the same way that I would compliment my neighbor if he cleaned up his yard. That's a nice grass you got there, neighbor. I feel the competition now. We got to one-up each other, right? See, you're all getting kind of nervous right now in the way that you're hearing me speak because you're like, oh, man, I don't want Pastor Josh to see my yard, right? Like, I need to cut the grass. It's been two weeks. Ugh. We delight in those things we take pleasure in, and we approve others who take the same pleasure in the same things we take pleasure in. And we brag about it, and we give approval to others about it. And this reveals the heart. Jesus teaches that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And it isn't just lost people. It isn't just pagans. It's religious people, too. Again, this isn't the first time that Paul has raised this issue of boasting. Look with me in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 18. In Romans chapter 2, he's shifted his focus away from the pagans, and now he's talking about Jews. He's talking about people who are religious. He's talking about people who've received the word of God. They have the Bible, and they're trying to do it. And he says, if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law, and you boast in God, notice that you are bragging in God, and you know his will, and you approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. Look at what he says. He says in verse 23, jump down to verse 23, you who are boasting in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. He says you're bragging about your, your possession of the scriptures. You think you're awesome because you have the Bible and you think you're doing everything that the Bible wants you to do and yet you are not doing it and you are bragging in it but in not doing the law, you're actually dishonoring the Lord. But they're still bragging in it. And this is where it's very much on point for you and me today. It is easy for us to look at the world around us and to say, you know, these guys take pride in their fancy RV campers and their lake houses and their cottages and all this kind of stuff, or they take their pride in their careers, they take pride in how they've climbed the ladder at their business, they're at the height of their success, or maybe they take pride in their families and they have all these kids and and they take a lot of joy in these things and we look at them we say, oh, you know, like that guy shouldn't be taking a lot of pride and a lot of joy in those things. He should be worshiping God just like I do. And you may not even have noticed it. But in that moment, what you have done is you have just used religion, you've just used scripture as a means not for exalting God, but exalting God as a means of exalting yourself. Your boasting in yourself, that puts you in the same category as the Pharisees. Paul says faith in Christ excludes all boasting. Faith in Christ excludes all bragging. Paul says here that God is just and God and God alone will be the justifier. Not you, not anyone else. Only God and only in Jesus Christ. If God is going to heal the depravity of our hearts, 
he will not use anything that would even remotely allow us to say of ourselves, see, look at me, I did this. This this effort of mine, this is the reason that God saves me. This is the reason that God is proud of me. The only way you are forgiven, the only way you are ransomed, the only way you have your sins blotted out and wiped out is if you look away from yourself and place your hope entirely in Jesus Christ. That's where you must place it. That is the only hope that you have. Now, this makes this question extremely important for us. What does believing in Jesus really mean? Paul uses the expression here. He says, uh, we're not justified by a law of works. We're justified by a law of faith. Now, that word law, as we defined it earlier, it is a barrier, or to use an airline pilot's vernacular, it's an envelope in which we must fly if we're to fly safely. It is a barrier. It is a fence. Well, Under the law, we had to stay inside that law, and we had to work hard at staying inside that law in order to be righteous, and the purpose of all that was to show that we could never be righteous, but now we are justified by a law of faith. Working inside the law, we ourselves were doing the work. Now, when Paul says a law of faith, he's not talking about works. He's using this term law in terms of a boundary, in the same way that my airline friend would say there's a flight envelope that we have to stay inside of, the same way that a farmer would say, hey, I put up a fence here and hopefully my cows stay inside that fence. What Paul means here now is precisely the opposite. Works and all that you might do are placed inside this barrier of this fence and your salvation is in the law of faith. It's outside. It's bound outside and away from Works. He's not saying that there's something we have to do as a part of our faith. He is trying to show that there's a complete division between faith and works in the same way that Jews would have worked hard in order to keep the law. He's saying there's a new law, and it's a law of faith, which excludes all working and excludes all boasting. It is chained up in an area unto itself. Jesus Christ is there, and you must believe in Jesus, which makes this question extremely important for us. What does that look like? What does that mean? Does it mean simply that I know that 2,000 years ago, approximately, there was some guy born a Nazarene, born in the city of Bethlehem, born to a virgin named Mary, who was raised by a guy named Joseph, who's a long line, at the end of a long line of people who are descended from King David. Is, is this what this means? And, and does it mean that I have to believe that he's God? And, and does it mean that I have to believe that he died on the cross for my sins? Fine. All well, good. I believe it. Does that mean that I'm saved? If that's all that we're talking about when it comes to belief, then I might say yes. But then the question is, what does the scriptures mean? What, what does the Bible say when it talks about belief? Well, Jesus offers himself to us, not merely as a rescuer about whom we may know many things, but he offers himself to us as a rescuer into whose hands we must place ourselves. 
Wouldn't it have been wonderful if Jesus had used the analogy of a fireman in Scripture to say, believing in me means you have to actually jump on my back and let me carry you. But he didn't use that analogy. It's not that there weren't catastrophes in the first century. It's not that Christ couldn't have looked to any number of different rescuers and chosen any of these other things as illustrations of what it means to believe in him. He could have, but he didn't, which means that as we define faith and as we look to the one who calls us to believe in him, we need to define it the way he defines it, which means we need to look at the metaphors and the illustrations that he chose in order to describe it to us. I think perhaps the best book, the best gospel of the four in which the most rich language is used, and you'll find this repeated in the other gospels, but it is nowhere made more explicit than in the gospel of John. And in the gospel of John, Jesus says, believe in me that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. We turn to the gospel of John and we see that the metaphors that Jesus used include things such as living water living water, to be drunk. He also describes himself as a shepherd, the good shepherd. He also describes himself repeatedly as the bridegroom, the one who is going to marry the bride. He, he also describes himself as the treasure of great price. He describes himself last before Pontius Pilate, the one who is about to order his execution as a king. When Jesus says, believe in me, when Jesus demands, believe in me, and when he goes on to describe who he is and what faith in him looks like, particularly as we look at this metaphor of water, he makes the statement early on in the gospel of John, he says, if anyone thirsts, if anyone is thirsty and wants something to drink, he says, come to me and drink from me. He goes on to say, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty ever again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to everlasting life. And another place, he says, connected to this idea of drinking water, he says, I am the bread of life. He talks about himself as being bread, different than water, but similar in the sense that you have to ingest it. And he makes this statement, whoever comes to me, having just called himself the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In that particular passage, he he connects eating him as the bread of life with drinking and having your thirst satisfied. In other words, what Jesus is driving at here, church, is that believing in Jesus and drinking the water that wells up to eternal life are the same. Returning to this metaphor of being in a burning building then, what Jesus is driving at then is not, hey, I'm a fireman that's going to rescue you and carry you out of the firing, the burning building. What he's driving at is the fire is in your soul and you need water. You need quenched thirst. You need me far more and above just somebody who can carry you from one point to the next. It certainly involves that. But what Jesus is driving at in all of these metaphors, if you go back and you consider them, he's talking about being the good shepherd. 
You need somebody who's going to put a crook around your neck and yank you, which means if we're treasuring Jesus the way he calls us to treasure him as the treasure of great price in another place in the Gospel of John, if we're treasuring Christ, if we're believing in Christ, and he calls himself the good shepherd, then faith in Christ means at some point in time, Jesus has corrected your life and directed you in a different path. Are you believing in Jesus? When Jesus describes himself as being the water that wells up to eternal life, has there ever been a moment in your life where you're like, oh, I am so sick of the world around me. I'm so done with all the sin and all the wickedness. I am thirsty. I long. I hunger for something better. And you knew instinctively you could find that in Christ. Have you longed for Christ that way? Has there ever been a desire for water, a desire for Christ in your heart the same way there has been a desire for water at the end of a hot day? When Jesus talks about himself as being king, have you ever thought, man, I am so sick of politics. I just wish there was someone who could come send all these guys packing whom I could pledge my undying devotion and allegiance to, to be my king. All too often we talk about faith as, hey, listen, Jesus will carry you out of the burning building. Just believe these basic facts about him and what he did for you 2,000 years ago on the cross. But that is not how Christ describes himself. He says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Which means believing in Jesus Do you listen to him? When he says something is wrong, do you repent of it and do you follow him? When you're broken inside, does he heal you? When you're desperate for something better, do you find hope for that better in Christ? My fear is that in churches all across North America, all across the world, we want Jesus as our Savior and it's great for him to be there on a Sunday morning but we don't much need him Monday to Saturday. We don't look to him for guidance. We aren't desperate to hear his voice. We don't want to spend time with him. He is there on a Sunday morning, and we'll go, and we'll go to church and worship the Lord because that's what the Lord would have us to do. But man, we'd really prefer to be out on the golf course if we could. But then we go to work and we say, that guy next to me, man, he is such a sinner. He needs God, so he'll be more like me. We start to brag in our faith with Christ, not even realizing that in terms of our actual relationship with Christ, it's not all that different than the guy who has nothing to do with church. What Christ is calling for and what Paul is going to be driving at in this letter is conversion, a radical transformation of all that you are. It starts with a desperation for forgiveness, but it goes deeper, it goes further. It means cultivating a new taste. It means wanting a new desire. It means treasuring something altogether different than what the world offers you. And so my question is, where, church, is your faith? It's the same question that Jesus asked the disciples when they looked at the storm and they were terrified. And they had the Son of God resting in the boat, sleeping soundly. Where is your faith? 
Where is your faith? When Jesus first said this to the disciples, undoubtedly the apostles would have felt its intended rebuke. As I pose the question to you this this morning, perhaps some of you are feeling that rebuke. I'm not treasuring Christ as my everything, my all in all. They would have told you that they absolutely trusted in Jesus. They thought that they had. But the storm proved that all the confidence that they had felt when the pressure was off was nothing more than a fair-weather faith. When the skies are sunny and blue, and there are no clouds and no rain, no thunderstorms, no turbulence, sure, we trust in Jesus. But what if he calls you into the storm? What if he sails out into that Galilean sea and he goes to sleep in the boat? The Galilean westerlies had swept away all of their false illusions about faith in Christ and revealed to them that they believed in the power of the storm and they believed in their own ability to deal with the storm. The more these guys would have thought about the question, the deeper it would have dug into them. Where is your faith, Christ had asked them. Where is it? They would have said, of course, my faith is in you, Christ, but the more they would have pondered that question after Jesus had put it to them quite like that, the more they would have understood, well, my faith is in what I feel. When the storm hit, I trusted what my eyes saw. I trusted what my skin felt as the waves would have hit me, as the rain would have fallen, as the wind was blowing. I trusted the violent force that was tossing our boat around like it was nothing but a toy. I trusted in the stories my father had told of other relatives dying on that ocean. I trusted in the tragedies that I had seen when I was a boy. I leaned into everything I know, everything I think is true. I placed my faith in my judgment. And when the waves and the storm hit, I took actions immediately that I thought were right because I thought I was in control. Where is your faith? Jesus says, believe in me. It's a demand. It's not a suggestion. He says, believe in me that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. This is good news. Jesus isn't coming to us and he isn't saying, hey, I'm one option of several really good options. Jesus isn't coming to us and saying, hey, hold my hand and I'll be here if you get into trouble, but you continue to rely on yourself as you look at the world around you. And only when you realize you're in over your head, then you can turn to me and I'll take care of you. That's not what Christ says. Jesus says, where is your faith? They're looking at this storm. And the storm is going to kill them. And they said, we perish. (laughs) That's what they told Christ when they woke him up. We're dead men. And Jesus killed the killer storm. Church, believe in Jesus. Hope in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for sending your son 
We tend to invent all of these interesting illustrations and metaphors from airplanes to firemen, and yet your word is quite clear. You're described to us as being water. We need to receive you. Not think necessarily certain things are true about you. Faith is absolutely rooted in history, Lord. But faith means embracing you in a personal relationship. One in which we surrender everything to you. God, I pray this morning, if there are any here who have not surrendered everything to you, that have not trusted totally in Christ, I pray, Lord, that you would help them by posing that question to their heart. Where is their faith? Help them to surrender it and place it in your son. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.